Well, we are in the book of Genesis, and we've been hanging out there for a little bit. And last week, we talked about the Tower of Babel. This week, we're going to jump right then into our father Abraham. Now, when we talked about Babel last week, we were in Genesis chapter 11. And in Genesis chapter 11, and those first nine verses, we saw how humans decided to try to build a structure or tower so that they could get up close to God, and they wanted to build a name for themselves. And if you'll recall, they really did. They really did build a name for themselves. The name that they earned at the end was Babel, which was complete disillusionment, confusion, gibberish. They got scattered all over, and so that was their name. They, we really did do it. We made a name for ourselves, Babel. And now what? Well, there are 10 generations from Adam to Noah and 10 generations from Noah to Abram. And in that time, between the Tower of Babel incident, between Noah and Abram, we actually don't have any real interjection of God into the story of humanity. Nothing recorded. It's silent from Noah to Abram. And then we get to meet Abram. In Genesis Chapter 11, it reads this towards the end. Terah became the father of Abram, Nahor, and Haran. And Haran became the father of Lot. While his father Terah was still alive, Haran died in Ur of the Chaldeans in the land of his birth. Abram and Nahor both married. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife was Milcah. She was the daughter of Haran, the father of both Milcah and Iscah, and Sarai was childless because she was not able to conceive. Terah took his son Abram, his grandson Lot, son of Haran, and his daughter-in-law Sarai, the wife of the son of Abram, and together they set out from Ur of the Chaldeans to go to Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. Terah lived 205 years, and he died in Haran. Now, here is our map. Here they are in Ur, and Terah, Abraham's father, Abram's father, and his sons, two of his sons, because one has passed away, they start to make their way through Babylon, up through the Euphrates, to Haran. Now, this dotted line here says maybe they went this way. One of these two ways they end up, and they hang up up here in Haran which you would think it's, it's much even further north. Here's modern Syria, much further north than that. Why wouldn't they cross the desert that way? No water, good. And also camels hadn't been domesticated yet. So it would have been very difficult to cross the desert on a camel. These were people who were riding donkeys, not camels. And camels could make this kind of distance, oops, across the desert, but certainly donkeys couldn't. So this was the only means of travel. Now they stop up in Haran. Terah stops there. All of Abraham's family stops there. But then in that moment, up from that perspective, we're going to get that Abram gets an additional call from God. Now when they leave Ur, they're leaving something beautiful and a huge urban center. They're living, here's an uh, artist uh, illustration of the sacred precinct of the moon god Nana. So you can see it's quite impressive. Here's that ziggurat, Babylon-type tower that we've been looking at. A huge industrial complex, a huge city. They leave all of that. They leave a harbor that's in Ur of 2000 BC from the time of Abram. It looks beautiful. It looks like people can make life really work there. And God's going to call and say, you're going to have to leave that, all that you know, and start to head towards a different direction. 
Now, this picture was taken, and it's a photograph that's been restored and colored, 120 years ago of Bedouin in the land of Israel. That is only 120 years ago and looks pretty primitive, doesn't it? Compared to those illustrations that you're looking at of Ur. Here's shepherds in the hill country only 120 years ago. Can you see the difference, just visually, of what God is asking Abram to leave? As Abram and his family move out of Ur, and then Abram ultimately is going to get a call to go to Canaan, they are moving from a huge, major metropolis to the backwoods, where you don't get water right there on the shores, but instead you have to find water that's in the hills and dig it out and pull your your buckets down and have a well and all those well stories starting to come into your mind from the stories of Genesis and Exodus and on. That's the life shift that they're asking for. So in Genesis chapter 12, after they've made started to make some of that shift, we get this call. The Lord had said to Abram, go from your country, your people and your father's household to the land I will show you. Now, this beginning of this call comes without any warning. It just jumps right into the scene, right at Genesis 12. Boom. Ready, Abram, go. In Hebrew, he says, lech lecha, walk. Walk after me or go to yourself or there's all this really fun stuff you can look at in the Hebrew. But lech, walk, go, get out of here, go, walk, journey, travel. And leave everything you know. And go to something that you've never seen before. So he doesn't say, go to the place you were last week. He says, go to the land and I'll show you, I'll show you when you get there. So Abram doesn't know at all what that call will be. He doesn't know exactly what it's going to look like. He doesn't have an idea of, well, I'm pretty sure that I feel called to this city and this place and this time. He doesn't get to say any of that. He just has to go to the land that God will eventually show him. It's a bit of a vague call. But what is clear is what Abram will have to leave. His country, his people, his father's household. Everything he knows, all security in his life, every single bit that can help him feel safe in this world, leave everything that gives you any identity, leave it all and go to something you've never seen before. And I'll make you into a great nation. Now, if you'll remember, we just read at the end of chapter 11 that Sarai is his wife and she's childless. So this already seems ridiculous. Abram, leave everything you know. I'll show it to you when you get there. Don't worry, you'll become a great nation. Um, Yeah, I don't have any kids. Oh, I'll bless you. Okay, that's good, thanks. I'll make your name great, which is really interesting given the Babel story just before. And it's quite wonderful to think about Abram's name becoming great. And I will make you a blessing. You'll be a blessing to others. I will bless those who bless you. And whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Okay. 
So Abram, and we find out at the end of Joshua that Abram's family, his father's household, that they were all idolaters. That everyone in Abram's household, that they all worshipped idols. And if you actually look at the names that were just listed at the end of Genesis 11, most of them correspond with different moon gods that were associated from the land of Ur. So they're carrying names with them that are named after the gods of that land. And so here God, completely without image, shows up to Abram and just speaks a call and Abram is supposed to just go. And it comes without any forewarning. All of a sudden in Abram's life, this call comes into play and he says, get up, go, leave everything, all of your comforts, everything, and I will bless you. So what does Abram do? He goes, which is shocking. And this is why we start to call him the father of our faith. Because Abram's courage is such that he gets up and goes. So in Genesis 12, verse 4, So Abram went, as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he set out from Haran. He took his wife Sarai, his nephew Lot, all the possessions they'd accumulated, and the people they'd acquired in Haran, and they set out for the land of Canaan, and they arrived there. Now, in terms of seeing how God is calling Abram and starting to say, hey, I'm going to make you the father of the faith. I'm going to make you the patriarch. It's going to be Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who will be known as Israel, that our father, Abraham, will be the one that we all follow. And all Abram has to do is leave everything he's ever known, leave every concept of worship that he's ever known in his life, leave all idols, leave his entire family, his father's household, all of his protection, and go to something he's never seen before and believe in a vague promise of something that he doesn't understand will ever happen. No problem. And it just says, so Abraham went. Abram went. He just got up and went. And this is really the beginning of Abram's life. Now notice he's already lived 75 years of his life at this point. And oftentimes when we think about heroes in the Bible, and we think about how God interacts and talks with heroes of the Bible, we start to think about how God must have just been like hanging out with them all the time. Well, Abram had 75 years of silence. And then without warning, he gets a call. But part of what makes him our father Abram and our father Abraham is that he says yes to that call. He gets up and he leaves everything. The moment God calls him, he just leaves it all and he goes, and this is why he deserves the title, my father Abraham. Now, Abram traveled through the land as far as the site of the great tree of Moreh at Shechem. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land and the Lord appeared to Abram and said, to your offspring, I will give this land. So he built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him. So Abram has now gotten into the land. He's gone all the way down to the center of Israel, to Shechem. And he, there, here's an artist's representation of what that would have looked like. This is sort of the tell and that city wall. So very, not at all like it was at Ur, not fancy at all. Really just in the middle of nowhere in these hills of what we now call Samaria. Up in Shechem and Abram gets there and God says, I'm going to give this land to your offspring. So now once he's walked, once he's picked up everything and once he's moved, he's starting to get some clarity as to what that blessing is going to be. But he didn't have it before that moment. Have you ever come into a place in your life where you feel like God's starting to call you a particular way and it's not until you start to move 
and you start to get there. And maybe there's a lot of this along the way that finally at one point you start to get some clarity of what that vision and that call might be. But when it first happened, it was vague. I think Abram's courage here, his faithfulness to God can teach us that we can just start moving. Or as Dallas Willard says, we can just do the next right thing. We can just start to put one foot in front of the other. And then at some point we might arrive at a spot where God finally says, oh, by the way, this. So Abram gets to this point where all of a sudden he can say, by the way, this, this is the land I'm going to give your offspring. And at this point, if I'm Abram, I'm thinking, yes, but by the way, you know, I have no offspring, right? But okay. So Abram does this fantastic thing. He builds an altar to the Lord who's appeared to them and he worships God. At this point, we should all be going, yay, Abram, you did everything right. God showed up. God spoke to you. You had no context for this. You had no warning. Nobody else that you knew on the face of the earth ever knew about this God. And God called you, Abram, and he said, get up, leave it all, go follow me. And he does. And then he stops at the spot and God says, here's the land. He goes, yes, Lord. And he worships. He has obeyed. He has done everything right. Everything should be going great now, right? It's all hunky-dory. It's all good. Like in our Christian theology, we often talk like this, right? God gave you this call. Way to go. Good. You obeyed. Awesome. It will all now work out perfectly. But then, immediately following, there's a famine in the land that God just said, this is the land I'm going to give you and your offspring. Immediately, famine, Egypt, his life is threatened. She's my sister. Sarai's taken to Pharaoh's household, quarreling with Lot, separation, Lot's taken. Abram goes to war, rescues Lot, worships the Lord, still no kids, makes a covenant with the Lord, sleeps with Hagar, son, Ishmael, not the promised son, circumcision, visitors, promises, pleads for Sodom, destruction, she's my sister, Sarah's taken, Isaac's born, son of the promise, take your son, your only son, whom you love, take him up on the mountain, offer him a sacrifice, Sarah dies, Abram marries Keturah, offspring, death. Why so complicated? Isn't it that the math is two plus two equals four, right? But here the math doesn't add up. And I love this cartoon because eventually Simon put two and two together but was not happy with the result. I think Abram's putting two and two together at some point, right? At least I would be. I would be sitting there going, God, you promised. You said all of this stuff to me. You promised that I would have all of these things and it's not working out. I got to this land. I followed you. I obeyed. I even stopped at the tree and built an altar and worshiped you. What more do you want? Famine right away? Really? My life's going to be threatened. My wife's going to be kidnapped, taken into Pharaoh's household. I'm going to, I mean, what is going on? Didn't I obey? How many times do we ask questions like this of our own spiritual journeys and walks? I hear it all the time as a pastor. And you can say it to me. I can take it. I've been been doing this for 20 years. I'm used to the story. I say it to myself too. Where we try to understand the incomprehensible God and we try to say, but God, doesn't two plus two equal four? You said this, I did it, and now I expect this guaranteed result. But Abram's story shows us that that's not what happens. That that's not the guaranteed result. The guaranteed result isn't that it all works exactly the way that we've always wanted to work. And if you were watching Abram's life from the outside, you might start to think he had done something wrong. Haven't you heard Christians say that? 
Oh, you know what? You must not have been faithful enough. You must not have enough faith. You must not have prayed the right prayer. You must not have listened to the right thing. You must have taken a right turn instead of a left. I can't believe you did it. You know, when you, when you built that altar, did you build it right? What were the exact words did you say? Did you do it this way or that way? I mean, you must have done something to cause the famine to come into the land, Abram. I mean, really, at this point, it must be your fault. What is it that you've done? But the Bible says that Abram is blameless. He's righteous. He hasn't done anything wrong. Everybody ready? This is life. This is what following God looks like. It's complicated. It's messy. And it's hard. Journeying with God is not for the risk adverse. If you want a journey with the Lord, if I want a journey with the Lord, then we have got to be ready to embrace risk. We've got to be ready to say, this is going to be messy and it's going to be hard. And sometimes it's going to be hard as hell. And I'm not sure I'm going to make it. But somehow, as we inch our way through the darkness, as we just put our right foot in front of our left foot, and we do the next right thing, as we get through the famine, as we get through Pharaoh's household, as we get back into the land, as we finally see the promise come to pass, as we finally see the son to be born, and then God says, take your son, your only son whom you love, and go up on that mountain and give him back to me. That in those moments... Life is messy and it's hard and it's tough and it's painful and it's disappointing. But that's what journeying with God looks like. And this is why Abram is the father of our faith. Because he shows us how to follow God, how to walk with God, even in the midst of all that. And at no point do we hear Abram saying, hey, by the way, what was with the famine thing? He doesn't seem to be complaining about it. He's just doing the next right thing. Now, in Genesis 15, he will point out, how can that be since I have no offspring? But eventually he gets Isaac. And then after Sarah dies and he marries Keturah, he gets some more. The paradox of risky faith is that it often delivers us into the arms of Jesus. That when we are sitting in this risky faith moment, as we start to follow, we find ourselves falling more and more into his arms. Even though in those moments, it feels like we're further and further and further away. Maybe sometimes the furthest we've ever been from him. But Hebrews tells us this. By faith, Abram, Abraham, when called to go to a place he would later receive as his inheritance, obeyed and went, even though he did not know where he was going. By faith, he made his home in the promised land like a stranger in a foreign country. He lived in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob, who were heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city with foundations, whose architect and builder is God. And by faith, even Sarah, who was past childbearing age, was enabled to bear children because she considered him faithful who had made the promise. And so from this one man, and he as good as dead... Hebrews says that Abraham is as, Abraham's as good as dead. Came descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as countless as the sand on the seashore. Remember, God doesn't even call Abraham until he's 75 years old. And then this is this brilliant verse in Hebrews 11. All these people were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance admitting that they were foreigners and strangers on earth. Had you ever thought about that? Abraham never saw 
his people become the mighty nation, not in his own lifetime. That was going to, a promise that was going to take generations and generations and generations to come to pass. That was not a promise that could be done in Abraham's lifetime. So God promises him something that cannot be accomplished, that Abraham has to know he will never see. Much like the land that I will give you that I will show you that you've not seen yet. And then when he gets there, by Abraham's death, have they taken the land? They have not. He's still a small clan, a small tribe. He never sees these things come to pass. And Hebrews says it so wonderfully. They were still living by faith when they died. And they did not receive the things promised. What does it mean to be living by faith? That you're just hoping really hard that something will happen? To me, it sounds as though it means living as though the thing that has promised, God has promised you, is going to happen in spite of all evidence to the contrary. So living by faith isn't believing really, really hard. It's deciding that in spite of what things look like right now, to still believe that God is faithful and that he will still keep the promises that he's made to you and to your descendants in spite of the fact that you see no evidence of that happening in the moment. It's not our faith that we live by. It's his faithfulness that we live by. So where's the hope if I've just convinced you all that you're on this journey that has no end and no declared blessing in sight that you may ever be able to participate in? How is that a great message just to end on? Amen. Go in peace. Serve the Lord. The great hope is that God journeys with us and calls us friend. Isaiah 41. But you, Israel, my servant Jacob, whom I have chosen You descendants of Abraham, my friend. God says of Abraham that he is his friend. I took you from the ends of the earth, from its farthest corners I called you. I said, you are my servant. I have chosen you. I have not rejected you. So do not fear, for I am with you. Do not be dismayed. I am your God. I will strengthen you and help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. The hope is that when we're on this journey called life, that when it's this type of journey, which seems like it is for nearly all the people that I've met. Hey, if you're one of those lucky ones, that the moment you accepted Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior, everything's been hunky-dory. You've gotten every job you've applied for. You've gotten every loan you wanted. Um, Every person smiles at you. Your bag never breaks at the grocery store. No one's ever rear-ended you. Nothing terrible has ever occurred. That's great. Don't tell me about it. I'll be bitter. Okay. So my life is that I fully confess my life to Jesus and it's been a great, wonderful adventure, but I'd be lying to you if I said it was easy. And I'd be lying to you if I said it wasn't full of disappointment and joy and hope and beauty. But the great news is that God calls us friend and he promises that he will be with us as we walk it. As he says, Lech lecha, walk after me, go follow me, get out of here and go. God says, don't fear, I am with you. I will strengthen you. I will hold you up with my righteous right hand and I will call you friend. This is good news. 
James 2.23. And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness and he was called God's friend. You want hope for the journey? Guess who's with you? God is with you and he's called you friend. And Jesus does the same with us. John chapter 15. You are my friends, Jesus says, if you do what I command. I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends. For everything that I learned from my father, I have made known to you. Christ himself, Messiah of the world, Savior of all, has said that he will call you friend. And it's this beautiful picture of walking together. You are my friends if you do what I command. Just as Abraham got up and started to walk, obeyed God's commands, that Jesus too is saying, go, come follow after me, start to obey my commands, and we can be friends. And Jesus tells us, surely he will be with us always, even to the end of the age. Risky faith delivers us into the arms of Jesus for the journey of a lifetime. It's full of ups and downs. It's full of promises that will be kept, but that we might not always see their full fruition. We live in that season of the yes and the not yet. The yes that Jesus has redeemed the entire earth through his death and sacrifice and resurrection. But it's also that we're still waiting for the earth to be redeemed. It's the yes, I will be with you and I will protect you and I will love you and I will call you friend. And that will be true even when cancer comes. I will be with you and I will call you friend and I'll hold you up. And it'll be true when the job doesn't happen. And it'll be true when family disappoints. That God will be with you. That God is with me even through those tough moments. Following God is not for the risk adverse but it's for those who want to walk with him. And that's why in Genesis, in, excuse me, Deuteronomy chapter 26, it says that when we come before the Lord to give our offering of first fruits, that we should stand before him and say, my father was a wandering Aramean. The Bible says that all of us stand before God and say, when we bring that offering, my father Abraham. That we all attach ourselves to this story, this type of journey of faith, this type of journey of courage that persists to follow God, that persists to be even known as a friend of God through all of those circumstances. Isaiah 51, remember the rock from which you were cut and the quarry from which you were hewn. Consider Abraham your father and Sarah who gave birth to you. So if you and I are sitting here today and saying, wow, Abram, Abraham, you were amazing and you had courage and faith to believe when I certainly would not have. I mean, the moment my wife was taken into Pharaoh's household, I'd be like, I think God took a wrong turn somewhere, right? At that moment, the moment that I didn't have a son, all of those things would have caused me to think, I can't do this anymore, God. But Isaiah 51 says, you are cut from the same rock as Abraham from the same quarry as Abraham and Sarah. And so you and I together, our father Abraham, my father Abraham, this is the father of our faith. We get to walk with him and learn these lessons of what it means to journey after God and to be called God's friend, even through those dark circumstances. Amen? 
Amen. So I'd like to invite the band up, and we're going to uh, close in a song. And I hope you can celebrate this song um, and let it be part of what um, shapes our coming week as we celebrate the fact that we've been called friends of God.